seems a little wild. I don't know if you need to turn my mic down a little. Or... All right, so what we are going to do today, we are kicking off a three-week series called Moving Day. Does anybody remember what happens to our church in three weeks? <laughs> we are moving. Uh, we are relocating the church. We're only going a block away, uh, but we are, we are physically moving this congregation. Uh, and so what we want to do over the next three weeks is explore who it is that God wants us to be and what he wants us to accomplish in our new location. So uh, we're going to be talking about moving day for the next three weeks, and then we'll kick off a new series in the Gospel of John uh, first Sunday uh, in, our, in our new space. Okay? So uh, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 34. Now, for some of you, perhaps this is the first time you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and I get that. It's not, it's not one that we uh, frequently turn to first, uh, but we're going we're gonna to dive into the last chapter of Deuteronomy, and then over the next few weeks, we'll cover the first few chapters of Joshua. All right? Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which faces Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land. Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the plain, and the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. The Lord then said to him, This is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak, and his vitality had not left him. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Joshua son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to all his land. And for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would take the reading of your word, that you would bless it, and that we would hear from heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Fifty years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his final speech, it's come to be known as his mountaintop speech, where he referenced this passage. Now, he didn't know he was going to be assassinated the next day, so they came on a rainy night, where the rain was a lot more intense than this, showed up late because he didn't think anyone was going to come because the storm was so intense, but he walked into this auditorium and he gave a speech, one last speech before he was gunned down. And he referenced this passage, and he talked about the idea of being out upon a mountaintop and looking over the promised land. He's referring to this passage before us.
but he seemed to have some sort of premonition that maybe he wasn't going to get into what he viewed as his version of the promised land. He said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Now, what was Dr. King doing with this passage? He understood that the story of Moses on the mountain was real history that concerned the Jewish people. But in his final speech, he decided to use this story as a metaphor for the future of, Af of the African-American struggle for equality. And he talked about how he, like Moses, might not live to see his people experience God's blessing. But MLK said that that was all right because like Moses, he'd been to the top of the mountain and he'd seen the future. He was using this passage, understanding it in context, he was using it metaphorically. And that's kind of what we want to do today and over the next few weeks. Not with just this story, but with the first couple of chapters of Joshua. The metaphor for us is that of moving day. The people of Israel prepared to move. They prepared to change their zip code. They prepared to uproot themselves from one spot and go to another. And so in this passage, what Moses does is he goes up onto the mountaintop to see where they're going. And what we want to do over the next three weeks is to talk about what we can learn from their move to apply it to our move, for our church relocation into the Black Lady Theater on Western Avenue. So we want to examine ancient Israel at the end of Deuteronomy and at the beginning of Joshua because they were poised on the edge of the promised land. They were ready to receive their blessing. They had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, but now... It was time for a move. So we want to discover what we can learn from their move and apply it to our own move. But there are a few important cautions and warnings before we get started on this text. Uh, first, we have to understand that this text has a specific historical meaning. It's written to Israel, and it speaks about their conquest of the promised land. As a church, we don't have a promised land. We are the temple of God, and so we don't look to any sort of temporary building as a sort of promised land. Also, we are not waging a war, at least not of the flesh and blood variety. We are waging a war, it's a spiritual war, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. And then third, we don't have any sort of divine promise for the place that we're moving. The, the theater where we're moving, we are renters, and we don't have divine right to the land as Israel did when they marched into Canaan. We, we could be at the theater for generations, as Israel was, but we may move again in a year when we, when our lease expires. I don't know. I don't know the future, but what I do know is this. The same God who led Israel into the promised land is the same God who is with us, guiding us, and protecting us on our move. So over the next few weeks, what we want to do is to explore this ancient moving day and see what we can learn about our own moving day. And we're going to discover that there are three keys to a good move. Vision, courage, and faith. So today we're talking about vision, 
Next week we're talking about courage, and the week after we're talking about faith. So you see that in Deuteronomy 34, God summons Moses up onto the mountaintop. He says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which faces Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land. And then, then the geographical description is given of all that God showed to Moses. They have to understand that the people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years of experiencing a, a hard and difficult life because of their sin. And the older generation has died off. There's only a couple of older folks left, one of whom is Moses. He's 120 at the time of this story. But it says that he's in great health. He can keep on trucking for decades if God allows him to. But everybody has been dying off over these last four decades, and sin has kind of run its course in ancient Israel. Somebody said that it, it took God only a few minutes to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. And that's what he's doing in the wilderness is he's pruning them. He's trying them. He's shaping them. People are dying off. And there comes another generation that doesn't know what life in Egypt is like. They're kids, so their memories of Egypt are a little fuzzy. They don't remember a whole lot about Egypt. And so they're not tempted by how good it was back in Egypt. They don't know anything about Egypt. They've heard stories about being slaves in Egypt, and that doesn't sound cool to them. So they are poised, looking forward to getting done with this wilderness adventure and entering into the promised land. And so God, at the end of the 40 years, he takes Moses up onto the mountain. He says, Moses, I want to show you the land. This is what I promised you. This is what you're getting. This is what the people of God get to experience as their, as their birthright, as their blessing. And Moses looks out, and it's a stunning sight. It says that, that he, he sees Gilead as far as Dan, Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea. And it goes on. He's, I can imagine Moses being so excited as he stands upon that mountain. He's like, this is what we've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And he must savor the goodness of God as he looks at it. He must, he must have a moment to revel in God's grace. That this is what the 40 years has been all about. But it's a bittersweet moment for Moses. Because as, as we read here, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Verse 4 God says, this is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. He says, I've let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross into it. Was it because Moses was old and feeble? No. The text tells us that he's 120 years old and his eyes were not weak and his vitality had not left him. He is a strong and powerful 120-year-old leader of the Jewish people. Physically, he was more than capable. Mentally, he was more than capable. He could have led them into the promised land because his mind was sharp and his body was strong. But God had decreed that Moses was not going to go into the land. Now we know from the book of Numbers, from some of the stories of this 40-year trek in the wilderness, 
thing. Moses had sinned against God. He had disobeyed God when there was, a, there was an incident where the people needed water, and God said, go speak to the rock, and water's going to come out of the rock, and it will, it will nourish the people. And Moses got mad at the people, and so he took his, his stick, his rod, and he, he hit the rock. God had mercy, and water still came out, even though it wasn't what God said to do. But God told Moses, because you took matters into your own hands, because you acted the part of God, and you're only the prophet, I'm not going to let you go into the promised land. So even though Moses had great faith, even though he was on the, the right side of history when the ten spies said, oh, let's not go into the land, Moses was like, no, we need to go into the land. This is what God has told us to do. Even though Moses was on the right side, because of his sin and striking the rock, God does not allow him to enter the land. So this is a bittersweet moment because Moses is standing upon the mountaintop and he's seeing, here's where they're going. He understands what moving day entails for the people of Israel. They are going to move into this beautiful, well-watered land that he sees upon the mountaintop, but he himself is not going. Verse 5 says that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab. This is fascinating because he buried him in the valley. Who is the he and who is the him? Apparently the he is God. The him is Moses. God buried Moses. So, so Moses goes up onto the mountain to have a conversation with God. Moses had done this before. He'd gone up onto the mountain, remember, and he'd seen the burning bush. He survived that. He went up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments on what a fiery experience that was. And he survived that. But this time, Moses doesn't survive his mountaintop encounter with God. Because God had decreed that even though your mind is sharp and your body is strong, you will not lead my people into the land. And Moses probably is at peace with this decision. He sees the land. I imagine he celebrates in his heart. And I don't know if God strikes him dead or he's walking back down the mountain and trips on a rock. I don't know how he died. Text does not tell us. But it does say that God buries Moses. And that to this day, this is an editorial comment probably put in by Joshua. To this day, nobody knows where his grave is. A lot of times in modern day religions or even more ancient religions, people will create shrines out of the great prophets. Whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism, some branches of Christianity have done this. Islam definitely does this. And they create shrines to the prophets. Perhaps Moses was so popular that God was like, I, I don't want people making pilgrimages and, and adoring Moses, which is supposed to be Moses is just pointing to Moses. So nobody knows where Moses is. The only other mention of this is in uh, the book of Jude, which is a one-page letter in the New Testament right before Revelation. And it says that the, uh, the angel Michael fought with the devil over the body of Moses. Now that sounds a little weird. Sounds a little odd. We're like, wait a minute. Please tell us more. But God decided we didn't need to know anymore. But that's, that's what he, he puts out there. Uh, so apparently, 
For some reason, there was this encounter, perhaps it's in this text, perhaps it happens later, we don't know. But God chooses to bury Moses on this mountain. The devil wants to do something. I have no idea what he wants to do with Moses' body. The archangel won't allow the devil to have the body because God has decreed that this is where he will lay. Why? Why did it happen that way? Why did the devil, what was he doing? I don't know. Those are just unanswered questions. And when the text doesn't tell us, I'm not going to make something up or, or speculate. But what we do know is that this is a bittersweet moment for Moses. And the people down at the foot of the mountain are probably waiting for their hero, waiting for their leader to come back. And they wait. And they wait. And so they commence this period of mourning. And then it says in verse 9, that there's this transition to Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, he's filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him. Joshua was the assistant to, to Moses. And so the Israelites, they obey Joshua, and they do as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then the last few verses talk about how great Moses was. They're going to miss him as they go into the promised land. But I think that Joshua... Is infected, is infected with a spirit of vision from Moses. Moses was the leader who kept saying, hey, let's go get our inheritance. Let's go get what God has promised us. Forget the report of the spies. They're wrong. And Joshua was always with Moses on that point. Joshua said, forget the spies. God has told us to take the land. I know there are giants in the land. I know it's going to be hard, but let's do it anyway because God has told us to. And Moses and Joshua, they're always on the same page. They have the same vision, the same perspective on what the future holds for the people of God. So understanding that this is what happens in this text, we want to talk for a few minutes about vision. The vision that God had for his people then and the vision that God has for us now as we make our own moving day in three weeks. First thing that I want to say, I think I have these three points on the screen. I don't know if I do. Okay, there we go. Vision is rooted in the character of God. Vision is rooted in the character of God. Look back at verse number four. Moses sees this incredible sight, the promised land that God is giving Israel. But the most interesting part about it is not the geography, it's not the description, it's the history. Look at what God says, this is the land I promised. Did he promise it to Moses? Is that what it says? What does it say? Verse 4. This is the land I promised to? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. This is what he had told the patriarchs generations ago. I can imagine that as Moses stands up upon the mountain and he looks at the land, he has this incredible sense of satisfaction, knowing that the promises that were given over 400 years ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are now being fulfilled. Moses understood that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they died in faith, having received the promises but not ever seeing the fulfillment. They died as, as pilgrims, as Bedouins, as wanderers in this land, 
never having a permanent home. And they died off. And then the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And for 400 years, the people of Israel cried out. They cried out for freedom. And they longed for a land. Because God had said, you're going to have a spot. This spot is your spot. But they weren't in that spot. They weren't even close to that spot. They were down in Egypt as slaves. But now... God summons Moses up onto the top, and he gives him a vision of the future. And it was a glorious vision of the future, but it wasn't something that Moses had earned. It wasn't something that God was like, man, you, you people of Israel are so amazing. I'm going to give you this land. Well, Moses, you have, for the most part, obeyed me in the wilderness, so this is what you get. No. God bases this entire vision of the future upon his own character. How do we know that? God basically says, look, I have tethered myself to a promise. I made a promise to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I made them a promise, and when I make a promise, you can take it to the bank. God has never failed to keep a promise. God right here says, you can always catch it. God writes a really big check to the ancient people of Israel. The check is, you get this land. But then for generations, for at least four centuries, will be about 450 years total, they wait, they long, they hunger for this land. And God finally comes through for them, not because they are good, not because they are deserving, not because he sees that they're being unjustly oppressed, although they are. No, he acts because he has obligated himself to act, because that is his character. You see, the vision that God gives of the future, the vision that God gives to Moses is rooted in the goodness of his character. That God is a faithful God. He always keeps his promises. It's rooted in his goodness. That God is fundamentally good, especially in the way that he treats his people. This is more about who God is than about the people of Israel. Because as we know from reading the stories of them wandering in the wilderness, as we know from fast-forwarding ahead to read about how they lived once they got in the land, they didn't deserve it. Like us, they sinned. They failed. They didn't honor God with their lives. You see, this promise, this vision about what was going to happen was not rooted in the goodness of the people, but it was rooted in the character of God. Now, what is our vision for our new spot? Well, I have to say that we don't have like a vision from God in the sense that Moses did. I haven't been up on a mountain and talked to God at his word. And that's how he communicates to us. But here's, here's the vision that we've been operating on as a church the last three and a half years. Our vision is to be a diverse family on mission. If you've been around, you've probably heard us say that. 
And we want to be a diverse family on mission so that we're going to intentionally seek to be a multicultural church that lives like a family and is obsessed with the mission of making disciples. Now, that's not just a cool slogan. It's not something you can just put on a t-shirt or put on a website. It is a vision that is rooted in the character of God. We just finished preaching our series, The Story, where we walk through the entire Bible, creation, fall, rescue, and restoration, and what that shows us, what going from Genesis to Revelation shows us is that God, for all of human history, has been consumed with redeeming and rescuing a people for himself from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, uniting them together in one family and giving them a mission of spreading the good news of his love to all people. God's purpose has been to create this diverse family on mission. The vision of our church is one that is rooted in the character of God. It's not about us. It's about God. So here or there or in your missional families sitting around your dining room table or anywhere else for that matter, our vision is going to be the same as it always has been. That God cares less about the trappings of a building. God cares less about the space in which we meet. And he cares about the people that we are. The where is less important than the who. Who are we? And this is who we are. We're God's diverse family on mission. But the second thing that I want to point out about vision is that vision is about what God wants to accomplish in the future. God didn't just point Moses to the past and say, hey, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you remember the stories. He also said, this is, this is your future inheritance. This is what you as a people are going to inherit. That was the vision of the very imminent future that God gave to Moses. When I imagine our future as a church, again, I, I don't have a mountaintop vision from God. I don't think it works that way anyway. Um, but I think we know from his word what it is that he wants us to accomplish. And so if I were to imagine our future as a church, here's what I imagine. I imagine a church where marriages are thriving, where singles are affirmed, where children are raised as disciples of Christ. I imagine a church in which the people on the pews are people who are far from God. Because we have cultivated an atmosphere in which church is not for church people, it's not for the religious, it's for those who are outside the kingdom of God. I imagine a place where every nation, tribe, and tongue is worshiping and celebrating the goodness of God as expressed in the gospel. This is what I imagine. This is the future that I believe God has called us to. Specifically, I think we are called to grow. We are called to reach more people who are far from God. The main reason that we are moving is because we believe that our new facility will help us reach more people who are far from God. Now I know, We've talked about this, um, that this building has certain flaws. It's been a good spot for us for the last three and a half years. Uh, but if you're not careful over there, you'll fall through the floor. Um, it's got issues like that, right? 
Um, and so we are, many of us are grateful that we're going to get to move because physically it will be a better space for us. But that is not why we're moving. Please hear me loud and clear. That is not why we're moving. We're moving so that we can be better positioned to reach those who do not know Jesus. We are not moving so that you or I have a more comfortable experience of church. Because you being comfortable on Sunday was never the goal of church. And if it is, you have missed the point. You see, we tend to approach church as consumers because we have been shaped by the American psyche, by the American culture. And so people are like, well, I'll go to this church if it has a good kids program that meets the needs of my family. I'll go if I like the worship style. I'll go if the sermons aren't more than 30 minutes or whatever, whatever your, your thing is. And we approach church like we approach a restaurant. I'll take what I like, and if they don't have what I want on the menu, I'll go to the place next door. And we approach church as being about our comfort. But my friends, if we are a people who are on mission with God, we will not be comfortable in church because, because the Holy Spirit of God will be there and he will be convicting us and he will be bringing people into our midst who do not know God, and that creates discomfort. That creates problems. When the person sitting on the pew next to you is Muslim or an atheist or they're gay and you're not quite sure how to interact with them, I say praise God because what we are seeking to do is to be a church that is on mission. We're not moving to be comfortable. We're moving to reach people who don't know Jesus because that is the point of church. When I imagine the future, I imagine all of these different things that I've described, healthy marriages, kids who are being discipled, people who are being baptized, but I also see a growing church because we're not concerned with ourself and with our programs and with our cool new building, but we are concerned with spreading the gospel to everyone within our spirit. And if that's not your heart about this move, then I would ask you to take a long, hard look in the mirror. Say, why, why am I here? Why am I moving with this church? And I'm not asking anybody to leave. But I'm saying that maybe some of us need to change our hearts. Shift our own perspective. Because the vision of the future is about what God wants to accomplish in us and through us. He accomplished a lot in Israel when they were in the promised land, but he also accomplished a lot through them. One of their, their main purposes was to be a light to the nations, as the book of Isaiah says. They had a, had a missionary task to these nations that surrounded them. And we have the same task and the same call. Vision is rooted in the character of God. Vision is about what God wants to accomplish in the future. But vision is not naive. That's the third point, right? Vision is not naive. There's going to be problems in the promised land. How do we know that? Well, Moses is standing up there, and it really struck me. I had never thought about this until I read the text for the sermon. Look at verse 1. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which faces what? What does it face? What does it face? Jericho. 
And the Lord showed him all the land. Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the plain, and the valley of what? Jericho. Jericho is mentioned twice. Now, if you, if you don't know your, your history, previously the people of Israel had opted not to go into the promised land, even though God had said, hey, this is your land. You should go in and, and receive your blessing. You should receive your inheritance. And God sent, or, or God didn't send, but Moses sent 12 spies into the land. Ten of them came back, and they were overwhelmed. They were like, yeah, it's a good spot, but it's got tons of problems. There are giants in the land. There's this fortress called Jericho. You don't dare enter this land. And there, there were two good spies. Joshua was one of them, and Caleb. And they were like, I know there are giants in the land. I know there are problems. I know there's going to be a lot of spiritual opposition in the land. But this is what God has called us to. So let's go. And the people of Israel said no. And they cursed themselves. They doomed themselves to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so all of these people are dying off. And so God summons Moses up onto the mountain to show him the promised land starting with Jericho. Now Moses didn't write this chapter. Moses wrote most of the first five books of the Bible. But this chapter describes his death and his burial. Somebody else beside him had to have written it. Probably Joshua. And I think that what Joshua is doing here is he's dropping a hint about what's about to come. You see, once the people of Israel had already been scared off by Jericho. But now God says, look at this beautiful and amazing land. Yeah, there's a fortress there called Jericho. I'm going to give you that. God's vision of the future is not naive because it anticipates trouble. It anticipates opposition. It anticipates struggle. Now, we said that one of the, one of the uh, ways in which this analogy fails is that unlike Israel, we're not uh, you know, an army marching in conquering the land, right? So that's where the metaphor breaks down a little bit. Um, but we are engaged in a war. The book of Ephesians and other parts of the Bible, really a lot of the parts of the Bible, describe what we would call spiritual warfare, where God's people are, under the blood of Jesus, fighting against an unseen foe, like the one who wanted to take Moses' body on the mountainside. We're fighting against the devil, we're fighting against his demons, and they do oppose us. They have always opposed God's people. They did it on this mountaintop when they tried to take the body of Moses, and they do it through various means today. Now, sometimes people get, they get spooked when you talk about spirits and demons. Depending upon your cultural background, that may seem normal to you, or that may seem incredibly different. But what I want to submit to you is that the spirit world the world of angels and demons is one that is described in the Bible, and so it is one that I must believe in. Spirits are real. Angels are real. Demons are real. Some of you, I know your stories. You've, you've come from a background where you have experienced stuff that sounds a whole lot like it's right out of the Bible when it comes to encounters with demons or things like that. 
we know that if we are faithful to follow Jesus into our new environment, that we will experience opposition. It's not like the mayor is going to try to shut us down or our new neighbors are going to try to shut us down. No, but we will experience spiritual opposition. If we are faithfully following Jesus, we will, we will face that. What form will that take? I'm not sure. Could be that it'll stir up. The devil will stir up disunity within our midst. That's one of his favorite tricks, to get God's people to fight against one another. Or maybe he'll cause us to uh, be complacent. Or maybe, maybe it'll be a more kind of frontal attack where he will tempt us or our children. I'm not sure. Now, I'm not trying to freak any of us out, right? Because I believe what Jesus said, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Um, we're going to a spot that is not a bastion of Bible-believing Christianity. I don't know if you've ever been to the spot. I know some of you have been. Uh, where we're relocating our church to is a place called the Black Lady Theater. Let me just start by answering the question about the name. Some of you have asked, why is it called that? It's called the Black Lady Theater to celebrate the important role that African American women and Caribbean women have played in historic black communities. Um, that's where the name came from, an attempt to honor black moms. So at this theater, um, we are going to be one of many tenants. We're going to rent a building on Sunday morning. Other people are going to rent a building on Sunday night. Other people are going to rent a building on Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, all different times. And what this theater does is they put on shows. They put on plays. They do music. They do spoken word. They do poetry. Some of it, I'm going to be frank, some of it may not represent our values as a church. Because they are a secular business. They have one goal, to make money. Okay? I don't really fault them for that goal of making money. That's what every business tries to do. But they may, they may uh, on a Tuesday, there may be a play there that is counter to our values. So rather than being freaked out about that, rather than wringing our hands because we're meeting there on Sunday and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, and on Tuesday they're doing something else that may be, um, I don't know, but contrary to our values, instead of being freaked out, instead of wringing our hands, we will celebrate the opportunity that we have to circle around Jericho and blow the trumpet horns and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. I view this as a lot like Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to Mars Hill. Do you guys remember that story in Acts 17? In case you're not familiar with it, Paul walks into the city of Athens, and he's all by himself. His team uh, had left him, and he was waiting for them to come, so he's all by himself, feeling maybe a little bit lonely, vulnerable. And secular historians tell us that there were thousands upon thousands of idols. They were lining the docks and lining the, the streets. So as he, as he gets off the boat, as he walks into the town of Athens, he literally passes thousands of idols. It's like standing room only with the idols. And then he gets to this spot called Mars Hill, where people would debate the latest ideas, where they would debate this idol or that idol or this god or that god. And you know what Paul does? He doesn't freak out about the idolatry. He doesn't wring his hands in despair and be like, there is so much spiritual darkness here. There is so much oppression here. There is so much that is counter to the gospel. 
I'm just going to have to wait for Timothy and Luke to catch up, and then I'm catching the first boat out of here. He says, I've looked around, and I've seen all of your idols, and it has grieved me in my heart, and so I want to talk to you about this unknown God. Him who you ignorantly worship, I will declare unto you. And he preaches the gospel. He declares that Jesus is Lord as he's surrounded by the idols, as he's surrounded by the idolaters. He stands upon Mars Hill, and he fearlessly and authoritatively is on mission in Athens. Vision is not naive. It doesn't mean that everything about our move is going to go well or is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that we're like, oh, yeah, this is a good move. And we fasted and prayed together as a church about this for a week, and it was unanimous. We felt like God spoke through, through his people. But that doesn't mean that God is saying there won't be any trouble over the next year. We have to gird ourselves up for a spiritual battle. As we move into this spot, we are to be a people on mission who recognize that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And what we are going to do is like Paul at Mars Hill. We are going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Perhaps to idolaters. And we're going to make his name known. We're going to talk more about spiritual warfare over the coming weeks. We're going to talk about it um, over the coming months. To really prioritize the idea of corporate prayer. That we pray together for one another. We plead the blood of Jesus over our congregation. That's something that we want to take seriously as we move, because we recognize that if we are following Jesus, we will experience opposition. Opposition doesn't, is not a sign that you're not doing what God wants you to do. Could very well be, and probably is, a sign that you are doing exactly what God has called you to. So vision is rooted in God's character. It celebrates his goodness. It reminds us of his promises. Vision is also about what God wants to accomplish in the future by reaching more people. But vision is not naive. It recognizes that we are in a spiritual fight and that we have to be people who are praying, people who are fasting, people who are holding one another accountable, and that we are on mission together. That's what I see when I stand on the mountaintop and look over. I'm just asking you to see that with me. Now, I want to show you some photos. Um, Sean, do we have the photos of the spot? Um, I'm just going to walk you quickly through a little bit of this vision of the future. So this area, I don't know if you recognize yourself. Um, you didn't know you were going to come back, Megan, to be on, on the screen. Um, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to clean up this area, and when you, when you go to the top of the stairs um, at the theater, we're going to meet in Studio One, which is upstairs. You'll come through here, and this is going to be our coffee greeting station. This is where we're going to have our church greeter. Uh, this is where uh, we're going to be you know, having the coffee and all of the stuff that you grab now. We'll have it up here. The next slide shows um, the kids' room. So all the kids are going to be in one spot. Sometimes we have separated the older kids from the younger kids. We have a, a much larger room, so we're going to put all the kids in one spot together. How that works out, we still don't know yet, okay? It's a work in progress. Church always is a work in progress. But this is the room that the kids are going to use. The next, um, and I think all of the, all of the rest of the slides, um, shows the, the main room that we will be using. So um, 
We will probably set it up like this. Oh, we'll, we'll experiment. All right, nothing is set in stone. But we'll probably set it up like this. Um, and we'll have the chairs circling around. The room is big enough that we could probably put, uh, fit 65 to 75 chairs in there if we need to. Um, although we won't need to start out with that many, but the goal is that we grow because we're reaching more people who are far from Jesus. The rest of the slides, you can just kind of cycle through them, Sean. Um, they show more of the thing. They show the, show the spot. They show the setup. We'll be kind of in a semicircle around the pulpit there. Keep going. The bathrooms are also on this level. Sorry, I don't have any pictures of the bathrooms and everything leading away to <laughs> bathroom pictures. All right, keep going. All right, next steps. So that's where we're going. And I want you to view it as a as a uh, a spot where there will be challenges, a spot where there will be work to do. But this is not a perfect spot. It's got some flaws, just like this spot has some flaws. But we are going because the Lord has led us there to proclaim the gospel to people who are far from Jesus. That's why we're going. So here's the next step. I want to ask you to do one or more of these three things. One, to commit to pray daily about this year. We're moving in three weeks. And we need some prayer warriors who will sign up and say, I will pray every single day for the next three weeks. That God would give us a gospel opportunity here. That our church will grow by engaging people who are far from Jesus. We're going to be on a commercial street. A lot of hustle and bustle on Nostrand Avenue. We're going to be on Sunday morning, which is a more traditional church time. I believe that this is an opportunity for us to engage our neighbors with the hope of the gospel. Pray, labor in prayer with us about this move. Second is inviting your friends to our new location. Uh, I talked to one person, they were like, yeah, um, I want to invite my friend to church. She's interested, um, but I'm going to wait a few weeks till we get in our, in our better building. I was like, I understand, that's okay. Um, but invite your friends to our, to our new location. We said that the whole point of church is not for us, but it's for those who are on the outside. So invite your friends. And three, volunteer to help us accomplish the mission. As we move, there's going to be tasks that have to be accomplished. Whether it's cleaning out this building, whether it's being a greeter at our new facility, uh, whether it's helping with the kids, there's going to be a number of different things, a number of different responsibilities, a number of different ways to serve. And I want to ask you to consider, maybe you're sitting on the sidelines, but church is not a spectator sport. We're all supposed to get in the game. So maybe God would lead you to say, all right, I'm not currently serving. You want to serve, River? <laughs> Raise your hand. Um, that we can all get in the game and we can all serve. You know, this last week I was in Atlanta to help my mom um, as she downsized, I think, to, to move to Nashville. Uh, it was a lot of work this week. I was so worn out. Uh, a lot of work to thin out stuff that she and my dad had accumulated in those 40 years of marriage. It was hard work, but I know it's going to pay off when it comes time for her moving day at the end of June. Over the next three weeks here, there's, a, there's work that needs to be done, and then the real work will begin after our move. You see, there are tasks that need to be accomplished, but mainly and more importantly, there's a people who need to be shaped by God for a new place. When we get to our own moving day, I trust that we will find it's been worth it. My friends, I've been to the mountaintop. 
seeing what could be our future. And I want to ask you to dare to dream again. Lord, I thank you for the life of Moses.